This is Frontierland with Dr. Dean Allen. Joel Stransky is perhaps best known for kicking that dramatic drop goal in extra time to win the historic 1995 Rugby World Cup final for South Africa. Almost 30 years later, we are celebrating another World Cup title for the Springboks. Listen here on Frontierland as I discuss with Joel the triumphs of 1995 and 2023, as well as his life after rugby. Enjoy. One and welcome to Dean Allen's Frontierland. I hope you're well. I hope you've had a good few weeks. This is actually the final Frontierland of 2023. And what a year it's been. We've uh, interviewed some wonderful people on, on the episodes. Please go back and check them out. Everyone from conservation, music. Um, so we've got a lot of variety on Frontierland. Tonight, we are going to be interviewing someone that you've all heard of, of course. The last uh, few weeks of 2023 have been dominated by sport. Here in South Africa, we are still buzzing after the Springbok victory over there in France. We are now world champions for a record fourth time, which is fantastic. But if you're anything like me, it was uh, it was tough going, wasn't it? Uh, the box winning their last three games by a single point so they really put us through it but we have a strong legacy of rugby here in South Africa um, going back to when the game was introduced back in the late 1800s I've done a lot of writing about that but more recently of course our World Cup heritage starting in 1995 that amazing victory against the All Blacks again of course that was won by a, a kick in extra time and tonight we're going to be speaking to the man who kicked that winning goal so I think it's relevant and uh, apt that we bring in none other than Mr Joel Strancy onto Frontierland. Hello from hello from the Eastern Cape I believe you're in uh, you're in a humid uh, KZN at the moment. Yeah, so we, we relocated here probably two years ago, two and a half years ago, and uh, uh, my businesses were still in Jobbik, so I commuted for almost two years. But this year, um, I, uh, I changed my life a little bit, bought a business down here, and we sold a couple of our businesses up in Kharteng, so I didn't, uh, the need to commute was no longer there. Um, and so I'm based down here, and, and it is sweltering at the moment. It feels like February's arrived in November. The humidity is tough. It's boiling hot. But, but that's why we live there, because the climate's so good. Of course, and you're looking fit. And, uh, well, I know you are. I know you're a keen cyclist. We'll talk a little bit about, more, more about that. But before we go any further, have you recovered from that World Cup? Wasn't it incredible? So still no nails, still uh, still showing signs of stress and ageing and wearing, wearing tear. Um, it, it was incredible. It was absolutely amazing. Um, it was stressful. It was, for us as you know, rugby fans and pundits, it was it was hard for the players. It must have been un- unbelievably tough. But boy, they were just sensational to to come through three tough games and, and by one point, uh, you know, three in a row like that. That's that's a sign of proper mental fortitude. It's a sign of it's a sign of of uh, of brotherly love almost to to go that deep for each other. You know, it was a special time for that team and a special time for us as as rugby rugby fans here in our country. Well, you were part of a special squad back in 95, and I think that's so important, especially in a, in a team sport such as rugby. Um, but were you, come on, be honest, were you confident that they were they could do it again this year, or, or did it kind of emerge during the tournament for you? So so I, I think um, the confidence um, ebbed and flowed. So in, in the build-up to the tournament, I actually I actually spoke at a dinner down in Cape Town where, where I said, you know, it would be surprised if we don't win it. It was... I said, I said at that dinner there were two things that um, that would concern you, and one was the fact that Jock Nino had, had announced that day that he was would no longer be part of the 
the Springbok coaching staff post-rugby World Cup. I said that's a, a little bit of a concern because um, obviously, you know, sometimes a disruption at, at management level, you know, filters down. Uh, but we saw none of that during the World Cup. The team were united. They, 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 the coaching staff were united. We saw none of that, which was wonderful. Um, and the other fear I had was just around, um, you know, the, 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 maybe the refereeing, the, the decisions, the, the, you know, the way the game goes. And, and I, thought, I thought we would have to be um, a little more clinical in our attack play to overcome some of those refereeing issues. And, and at the end of the day, I thought, actually, I thought at the end of the day, we got, we got you know, quite a few decisions go our way, which was quite fortunate at vital times. I see even yesterday the uh, the the uh, Ian Foster was moaning about one or two decisions still. Um, I thought we were we were fortunate, but I think to win a rugby world cup, to to win probably the most competitive rugby world cup of all time, you you need a little bit of fortune. And we played out of our skin. We created opportunities. We made sure when we were fortunate, we took advantage. It was it was a wonderful world cup. But but to answer your question, I, I believed all along. We would win it during the tournament when uh, we, we, we battled a little against Ireland. It was probably a game we could have and should have won. Um, I thought we were really lucky against France, and on the back of that, I was a little bit concerned, not about the England game. I knew we would beat England, although we nearly didn't, but I, I was a bit concerned about the final. But, gee, the boys came out on top, just sensational. And Well, I'm glad you weren't concerned about England. Uh, obviously, I'm a, a born Englishman, but I'm sitting here wearing my Springbok proudly. I, uh, I jumped ship back in 2019. Uh, I certainly uh, posted my colours to the mass. So I was sitting there watching that England semi-final and, and I probably had more to lose than anyone because I'd been, I'd been bigging up the, the box for weeks with my English friends. They were all saying, oh, you'll beat us easily. And for 77 minutes, of course, they probably p- played the ultimate game against us. And I thought, you know what, they're going to do this. But uh, we'll talk about the uh, the strength of the kickers and the mentality and how you help us out often. Um, but t- for me, once they won that game, I thought, you know what, perhaps our name is on this trophy. So, so firstly, I think I had more to lose than you around that England game because I'd written a, a column for the Telegraph in the UK. In the UK and oh, my goodness. In the column, I said that uh, if the All Blacks or South Africa lose their semifinals, I'll fall over backwards. And, and I'm told I'm told that the English team actually put that up on the wall in the change room as, uh, as inspiration. So, yeah, I, I definitely uh, was under a little bit of pressure there. Um, but, but, and I'd actually planned my fall. But, but the reality was, and it was of slight concern, um, that the English, and for that matter, you know, Wales, Australia, Argentina, the teams on that other half of the draw, they, they all had relatively easy pools. They all had easier semifinals. And whoever got, uh, or quarterfinals, I should say, whoever got into the semifinal would play against a team that had had a really rough run in the World Cup, big games, big matches, a massive, massive quarterfinal for, for France, Ireland, South Africa, New Zealand. Um, and and who, whichever of those teams were in the semifinal would have a big chance because the other team would be tired and mentally fatigued. They would be fresh and they would have to get up for one game and turn over a big side. And we've seen it done before. And England damn nearly did it, which would, would have been a great victory. And they were well prepared. Their, their game plan was sensational. I reckon when they look back on, on that game, they will be thinking they should have won it. They probably, they definitely should have won it. You know, it was it 68 or 74 minutes on our goal line Pete Aronson knocked it on. They had a chance to seal the game at 15 points to six, I think. Um, 
it was it was it was theirs to win, and they they just couldn't find a way to uh, to twist the dagger and, and make it theirs. And in fair use to Argos, they bounced back. They were they, they you know they found a way to win it in really tough circumstances. I, I sense there was a real togetherness, as, as we said, comparisons with '95 in terms of this squad. Do you think that's the culture that Razi has instilled? Does it come from perhaps C as the captain, or is it a real group togetherness? Have you heard, certainly in the media, what makes this particular Springbok squad so special? Well, I think it's the Springbok culture. I think it's a culture that's grown over many, many years. Um, you know, history has, has a way of, uh, you know, making people stronger, inspiring them, bringing them together. Um, there's no doubt Rassi and Jacques in, in the way they've gone about things have enhanced that culture, they've made it even stronger and I think probably most importantly when you, when you see the way Sia leads that team there's, 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 a, there's a love for each other you know, those players they, they, they love each other like family You know, it's, it's absolutely incredible how, how tight they are you can see it in the way they welcome back players um, I've seen clips of you know, them embracing Scott Brits when you went to speak the, the team. We've seen them embracing Lukanya Am and um, one of the other injured players, I forget who it was, when they, they returned you know, into the camp. Um, it, it, it is, it is a, it's a deep love. You know, and that, I think, is part of the whole culture that's grown over many years. And, and I think in the, in the latter years, it has become um, a little bit maybe deeper in, in terms of Sears' leadership and the way he does things, the way... You know, he's galvanised the troops, the way he's galvanised us as a nation again. Um, but, but, but it's a culture that is just incredibly strong. It's, it's not something that you, you know, you grow overnight. It's something that you, you grow over time. I've never experienced this anywhere else. I've, I'm a sports historian and I've written about the history of the of the box. I mean, going back to the first ever overseas tour in 1906, that was just after the Anglo-Boer War. This team was seen as a, a means of bringing the country together again. It was a tour of reconciliation. I mean, just four years after the war had ended, which is quite incredible. Every time we seem to go to World Cup, and you all know more than anyone, we'll talk about 95 in a moment. But again this year, a victory for the box it's more important than just a rugby game, isn't it? I mean, it's seen as doing more for this country than perhaps politicians or anyone can do. And does that ever get to the players? I know they, they talk about the bigger relevance of what they do and who they're playing for. Sia, especially, an incredible statesman. He talks about this is for the country. But surely at what, some point, the players must feel that weight on their shoulders. Um... So, so it's it's interesting because I, I don't think you can run onto the field between the four lines and try harder because there's an, there's another external, you know, little bit of pressure. I, I don't think you can try harder. You know, when you put that rugby jersey on, whether it's your schoolboy under 13B shirt or your Springbok shirt at a rugby World Cup, I think you run on as a rugby player and you do your absolute best every single time. You know, I, I, I smile when someone says, oh, that player today gave 110%. You know, a player gives 100% every single You go and give more than 100%. Player, a rugby player gives 100% every single game. So, so I, I think sometimes there is maybe a little bit of pressure, but, but the pressure can be an inhibitor more so than more inspiring because you are already giving your absolute everything. And... And I, th I think sometimes it's about controlling the emotions, controlling the feelings around that pressure. 
but certainly um, it just creates, I, I suppose, a, a, a narrative that, that maybe gives you comfort or inspires you a little bit more to make sure you, you know, you train hard during the week, you do everything that's possible, you enable yourself to run on on the weekend and, and give that 100%. Um, I, I, I think it's, it's also a position, a position of privilege um, for Sia and for their team to be able to say that, you know, for them to talk about it, to, to understand the relevance. Um, you know, we, we're a troubled nation. Let's be quite frank. We're a troubled nation. We, we, we live with day-to-day issues that are just, you know, second to none. One of the highest crime rates in the world, the, you know, the murder rates, the breakdown of infrastructure, load shedding. We, 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 our RAND is declining, unemployment. Um, we, we, li- we live in a troubled country. And so when there is something like a sport, whether it's, you know, the African Cup of Nations in 1996 or a Rugby World Cup in 1995, 2019 or 2023, um, it, it does give us, and I, I, I left out 2007, but, the, you know, those other three World Cups seem to have played slightly, a slightly major role in, in bringing us together at, a, at an important time. But, and sport can do that. Sport can bring people together, as Madiba famously said. You know, this is an opportunity that um, the rugby players took advantage of. You know, they, they spoke about it. They they wanted it to be something that, you know, united the nation again. They wanted it to be uplifting and inspirational for, for everyone in our country. Um, and and unbelievably, it, it was. You know, there were obviously the detractors post-rugby like Julius Millen and the FF, who we should just probably forget what they said. Mm-hmm. But, but it is uplifting. It is inspiring for us as a nation to see, you know, a group of players, a group of people coming together with, in harmony with real love and achieving something special. And I think it's even more special. Most people know the history of the Springboks, you know, the history of the emblem and the fact that it was contested. Obviously, Mandela embraced that um, during the 95 World Cup. Um, but for me, uh, to explain the spirit of South Africa to people outside, it happened in 2019 and it happened again um, during this World Cup. People of all backgrounds just put aside their differences, uh, cultural differences, political differences, and we come together through a united cause, which is the success of a team we identify with. And by the way, you, you, you mentioned a lot of the problems we have in South Africa, as I often give at my talks. I have to, have to remember that the world is a troubled place. Other places have the same kind of issues. But the thing is, yeah. with, the thing is with South Africa, Joel, don't you believe, our, our PR is poor. The, the news that tends to come out of places like America, Australia, the United Kingdom tends to be positive. It tends to put a positive spin on, on how they're handling situations. I think, again, the Springboks and sporting success has highlighted what's good about our country. It's an incredible country with incredible people and spirit. And I think uh, back in 2019, I had to explain this to an English friend of mine who didn't understand. I, I said, John, this victory means more than just a, 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 a game of rugby. This is for a country that needs this. It needs another shot in the arm to get us to the next World Cup. So that's where this pressure that we've talked about, maybe maybe the players thankfully don't realise what was going on back here. But I know m- myself, like everybody else, for that certainly for that final few weeks, we had a knot in our stomach because we knew we were 
near to again a positive experience in our country and you, no one no one knows that more than you because you talk about something that happened back in 95 um, with that marvelous uh, World Cup victory um, and and it's a legacy that lives on well beyond the World Cup so firstly uh, if I can just comment on, on so, so I, I, I think our PR is bad I think that's you know probably a valid point but but again I say this with a sore heart I don't think we do enough to fix the troubles we have in our country I think our I think our government is, is is disappointing at the moment we have such unemployment we have such poverty um, and and I, and I know there's this constant I guess this battle between the good guys and the corruption and the bad guys but but you know we I, I, I kind of thinking we need to be better you know we don't have we have little minor victories that we can talk about, but we don't. We don't have big victories. We don't. We don't see, you know, the criminal element in this country being locked up. We don't see load shedding being properly addressed right now, and 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 changes being made. We don't see work going into you know, fixing the water infrastructure. We don't see, you know, jobs being created for those who are unemployed. It's a private charity. We see the kids who are hungry. We see kids who uh, who's and who, who have. You know, we deal with daily issues that are just deep, deeply saddening. I think our government needs to do more, and that is why we as a nation need that upliftment. We need our sporting teams to bring us together. It's why people of all culture at times like that come together. It's, um, it's, it's as Madiba said, you know, sport has this ability to unite people, and, and winning teams have this ability to uplift people. And the Springboks, they may still be, they may still have the Springbok on their shirt, which in one or two Muppet sizes, an emblem of past, you know, atrocities. But this is a team that brings people together. This is a, a team that the nation love and support, whether it's because they're winning, whether it's because of Sia Kualisi or Rassi Erasmus Joachim, it doesn't matter. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful vehicle to bring people together, and, and, and long may that continue. Sure, it's, uh, to your point, to see people of all cultures, from all walks of life, on a Friday, wearing their Springbok shirt like you are today, waving the South African flag, it is just for all of us, every single one of us, it's up there. Now, we first met uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, I was doing a series of interviews for the, the rugby um, charity, the Players Fund, and I had the privilege of interviewing yourself alongside Oz Durant, Morny Duplessis and Francois Pinar. It was a, um, the anniversary of 95. And I remember the conversation we had prior to the show and what I admired about you. I don't think we mentioned rugby once. It was, we were during, it was during COVID. There were bigger things to worry about. But it, yeah. you, you always make that link between, between sport. But obviously, you're, you, you, you are aware of the issues that are happening in this country that we all uh, they're all aware of. I want to just just step away from rugby for a moment, Joel, and just talk a little bit about yourself. Um, for, for for many of the younger viewers, they'll know you as a TV pundit. They'll be watching uh, watching the rugby perhaps and seeing you on the screen. Me- most people watching this will know exactly what you did on a rugby field. But what, what's uh, what's life beyond rugby been like for you? And uh, what are you busy with at the moment? So, so life beyond rugby for me has always been some sort of business involvement. Um, I was a, a corporate animal for a little while and about 12 or 13 years ago went off into the private sector and uh, um, set, helped set up a, a business with a mate of mine and the business grew. We incorporated another friend and our attorney, we called the Pivotal Group. Um, we sold two of our businesses last year. We still have five businesses in our stable. And, and, and then about three years ago, I ended up moving back to KZN. My wife 
is a is a North Coast girl, and we um, to cut a long story short, we, we we came back here for all the right reasons, sad reasons, but the right reasons. And I commuted to Joburg for two years, and then I bought a business down here in Kazadin, and you know exited the the, the day to day stuff in in Joburg, and we live here in in uh, Salt Rock, and I work here in Belita. I've got a factory now. We man- manufacture paper products, toilet papers, paper tiles, all those sort of things, and we distribute, you know, all the hygiene and cleaning chemicals and, and solutions. So so that's what keeps me busy. I've, it's um, it's definitely outside of our technology. You know, I've grown up in, in the tech world and, and all our businesses were somehow involved in technology. But uh, it's a great little business. I've, you know, we, it's small. It's I've got great people, and and we're growing. We, we we're trying to grow. Well, you're looking as fit as you always did, and I believe that uh, you're a keen cyclist. Uh, anyone that follows you on the social media and the stuff, uh, if I Google your name, uh, as many pictures of you come up on bikes as they do on a rugby field. What's yeah. that all about? So, actually, on, on social media, I'm not all that active on social media, but I think probably the only thing that that you know, I do get active about is the cycling side because it it's a great thing to share. It's, it, it, it became – when I got injured playing rugby, the, the doctor said to me, you can't run, get on a bicycle. And uh, so I, I, I cycled for about two or three years while the bones in my knee you know, recovered a bit. Then I was able to run a bit, carried on cycling. And then the adventure – I'll tell you what actually got me into cycling. Ilana Mayer phoned me um, in 2009, September-ish. She said – she said, uh, it's Ilana May. I said, oh, I said the Ilana May. She said, oh, yeah. I said, hey, Ilana, really nice to chat. How are you? Chat, chat, chat. She said, I run a charity. Do you fancy doing the, the Cape Epic next year for charity? I said, I said, what is it? She said, no, it's a little mountain bike race. I said, I'm in. She said, she said have you got a mountain bike? I said, no. I said, but um, she said, well, I'll arrange you a sponsored one and, you know, for this effort and uh, some help on the training. That'll be great. About about a week later, on the, I think on the Sunday Times, a little column there. So, oh, Stransky agrees to do Epic for charity. I thought, sure, but I better check this thing out. Wonder what it is. And and that was when the bug bit. You know, I realised I had to put some effort in. And uh, and since then, it's been just the most wonderful journey of endurance sport. It's like a it's like a proper addiction. It's a drug. Um, I've done a few Ironmans. I've done some crazy things. I ran comrades. Um, but, but the focus is, has been mainly on the mountain bike. And it keeps us young. It keeps us healthy. It keeps us fit. To, you know, to, to our conversation a little bit earlier about the rugby culture, the rugby tribe, cycling has its own, you know, tribe of people. It's, uh, you, you ride with a partner. You ride into these beautiful trails. You're out in the mountains. You see things, you know, that you wouldn't normally see in life. It's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great way of living. It's a great and, – and it is – it's a way of living as, as, as opposed to just doing a sport. Uh, long may it continue. Talking to beautiful parts of the country, we are in Nelson Mandela Bay, the Eastern Cape, absolutely fantastic. Um, we're a little bit sore at the moment because the, the box missed us out here in PE on their, on their victory tour. They went up to East London. How can they fantastic. do that? I know. Exactly. That's a poor show, right? It is a poor show. We're hoping they'll come back, so, certainly with the, the SEA connection and some of the boys from here. As you know, we're, we're rugby mad here, sports mad in, in Port Elizabeth, Quebec. Can we, can, you, can we go back to your sort of early playing days, you know, days of amateurism. It's a different game. Um, you know, the domestic game was so probably bigger than it is today. Can you give me some memories and some of the characters from this part of the world that you played with? Oh, it was hard. Jeez. So there's one thing we always knew. 
And, uh, and, and, and in my time, probably more at the Sharks, then I finished off with, with the Stormers in the Western Province. We always knew that, that we, were a, we were a good side. You know, we won the Curry Cup in 1990, and we had, a, we had a strong team. We had a whole lot of Springboks. It was a good side. We always knew we had a really good chance of beating Eastern Province. We, we always knew we could, we could maybe win the game, but we always knew we were going to lose the fight. It was always hard as nails. It was tough and brutal. And you had guys like Audrey Heldenace and Armand Dupree in the second row. Francis Erasmus, the late Francis Erasmus, you know, the Domkrach, the, the prop. Andrew Patterson was, was the hooker down there for a while before he moved to Western Province. Garth Wright, you know, my first game against Eastern Province, I played against Garth Wright. And Henny LaRue was came on the scene somewhere around, around about then. Donnie Herber, and, you know, it was a team full of full of big, hard men, put a human in the loose force. It was, it was always, always tougher. I think, if I think back, I, I, don't, I don't remember losing too many. I remember always being battered and bruised coming off the field against that Eastern Province. And, by the way, it was home all the way. To go down to the butt was, was, also, was also tough. You know, the butt to us and Stagen down there. Oh. It ran the other way. The wind was always a factor. The changings were small. It was the crowd were partisan. It was it was a, it was a tough place to come and win. Well, we're known as the friendly city, but it seems like when it comes to rugby, we certainly didn't give a friendly welcome. It was only after in the bar, I'm sure you uh, got to know the the lighter side of the guys. Yeah, and and such great guys. You know, um, there were I mean some wonderful stories about the players down there. Fancy Erasmus in particular. What a character he was. I mean, and when I got to know Andrew Patterson a bit more, playing with them down in Cape Town, um, who is also a mountain biker, by the way, um, he used to tell us the stories of Franz Erasmus and and uh, and the boys down there. Just they they were they were a, a tight bunch as well. They loved their rugby, but they they loved their fun times as well. No, I can imagine. Uh, no, I'm sure some of the people watching this would would enjoy that trip trip down memory lane, as you said, the Butte Erasmus Stadium. I I ran around there the other day. And I thought, what a cauldron this must have been. What a bowl, a, a real sort of old amphitheatre of a, of a stadium. Yeah, very much so. And, and, and sort of like, as you said, like built in the bowl, built in the valley, the wind used to channel through there. It was, you know, I think for the, the, the kickers, it was always hard. Playing into the wind down there was, was brutal. It was really tough when, when, the, when the wind was pumping. But that's what home ground advantage is all about. It's about understanding the conditions, knowing the conditions, and playing to the best of those conditions. And by the way, also, uh, I was down there, uh, I don't know, maybe six or eight months ago and, and uh, drove past and went to try to drive in and have a look. It's, it's sad to see it's almost gone. You know, it's gone. It's now like a little empty valley. But, uh, boy, in the old days, it was a cauldron. Oh, amazing. There's some memories coming through. I can see some of the comments they're talking about, Danny Kerber and, and Henry Bezadenhoe, I can see. And there's, there's, there's various names coming through here that people are just – Loving these, uh, loving these names. Um, uh, Michael John Godfrey. Is that another one that's uh, coming through here? I can see. No, we 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 we're craving, we're craving live sport here in the bay. And uh, anyone watching this, please bring some top class rugby back. We had the Stormers here season before last. We, you know, we had a very good attendance. But of course, we need that. We need the box back in town, whether it's on an open top bus or preferably to play in our beautiful stadium, which is still here waiting for everybody. And what a beautiful stadium it is, isn't it? I mean, we've been down there a lot to, to watch and commentate and work. It's a, it's a great environment and, and so well supported. And, and hopefully there will be test matches to come to come down there. You know, the one thing about, I guess, saying to the Stormers, go and play there for them, it's, it's uh, the whole thing about a home game is about 
is about the crowd support, but it's about the comfort of your stadium and about being in a home environment and more than likely sleeping in your own bed and you know going to the stadium. So, so I understand the difficulties of taking Stormers games there because it doesn't quite disadvantage them, but it's not the same advantage as playing at, at home. But there's no reason we shouldn't have you know this one Test match a year down there. No, no, of course. Well, talking about home advantage, that leads us perfectly into into ninety five because that that was when, of course, we had the privilege of hosting um, rugby's biggest spectacle. Um, I first arrived in South Africa in the mid nineties. I, I came just after the tournament, but I, I remember even watching back in the UK and thinking, "There's something special about this tournament. There's something different about the importance of South Africa and what was happening at the time." Now. You, of course, were an important part of that 95 squad. I had the privilege of interviewing Francois, Pinar, Mornay, Duplessis and Oz Durant. And, of course, the, the players at that time, very different characters, very different abilities. But there was something special about 95. When did you realize that you were, there was a momentum? And did you realize early on that perhaps, again, this was more important than a rugby tournament. You had a role. Or was that something that perhaps when we've watched Invictus and the Clint Eastwood movie has been instilled on that episode at the time? At the time, did you know what was going on, John? So, so firstly, you know, we've, on the subject of the 95 squad, you know, Hannah Strayden passed away last week and, uh, and that was desperately sad and tragic and, and our condolences obviously out to, to his family and his kids in particular. Very, very, very sad news, and uh, another loss from that team. And and, and actually, it's a team we, we, you know, we've, we've lost a few players from that side. So um, it's quite, you know, it's four players now who, who are no longer with us, and, and a couple of the management team, three or four of the management team. So, so it's a it's a it's a team that's diminishing sadly. But um, condolences to the, the Australian family. So I, th- I think going back to that side, you know, in the build up to the World Cup, probably. You know, we, were, we, we we thought we were a good side. We thought we were full of good players, but we just didn't know. You know, South Africa had been in isolation for a while. Um, we'd, uh, we we hadn't really, you know, we were growing into the international scene. We weren't the most capped team because we really had two years of test rugby. Um, so, so going into that World Cup, we just didn't know. The one thing that Kitch Christie always said to us, he said, it's uh, the fittest team will win the Rugby World Cup, so we train bloody hard. We, we, we trained like machines. You know, we had Raymond who came and assisted and, and, and on the defensive side and on the fitness side. And, you know, between Kitchen and Ray, they, they, they ran us into the ground. And two things happen in a team that trains as hard as that. Firstly, you become really fit and you become, you stop believing in your abilities. Um, and secondly, you become close. You know, you become that springbok culture. You become that tribe of players who you would die for each other because when you go through hell together, it brings you together. It makes you stronger. And and uh, teams with great spirit traditionally and historically are great defensively because they work their socks off for each other and they they fit and strong. And that was exactly us. You know, we were a team. We went. We didn't play the flashiest rugby around. We didn't you know go out and score hundreds of tries. We 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 were a team that did the basics well. We were big and hard and physical and we defended like Trojans, we kicked our goals and we scored a few tries here and, and and that was really us. And I think the longer the tournament went on, beating Australia in the opening game, obviously seeing the fans come out in their green and gold with their Springbok flags at Newlands, you know, in such unity. And that inspired us and 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 you know moved us forward. Madiba's magic touch to come and address us and chat to us before that game, to come in the change room before the final. Those were little steps along the journey that just helped grow the self-belief, that helped grow the confidence, that 
you know, got us maybe to a point where we could win it. And then, you know, obviously in the final, we, we played really well. So it was a journey. It was, um, wasn't always an easy journey and adversity makes you stronger. And we, we had our, you know, fair share of humps along the way. But we came through those humps, you know, and, uh, we came out on top. Invictus was, the story of Madiba and Invictus was wonderful. Obviously the rugby scenes were all contrived. But the story itself was was was, was fantastic. You know, it was about a, a team that you know maybe in the beginning didn't have all that self belief, weren't the favourites, and, and came out on top. It was a great South African story. It you know epitomises us in a way as as a nation. And to meet Clint Eastwood and to meet you know Matt Damon along the way and Scott Eastwood and Morgan Freeman was for us really special. But if you'd said to us before that World Cup one day. Hollywood will make a movie about you. We would have told you you was, you'd be smoking your socks. You know? So interesting times. I think to come back to the question, we we were young rugby players. We didn't probably understand the magnitude of you know a nation coming together around a sports team. We, we wanted to run on the field and, and, and play the game. And longer the World Cup went on, we probably realised the significance. We saw people uniting around us. Um, and but I think afterwards you maybe understand it a little bit better than you do at the time. Well, you certainly defined your place in history. I mentioned at the start of the the interview that uh, the, the the box won the final three matches by a single point. By the way, uh, a bookmaker in the UK said if you'd have bet the odds of the Springboks winning the final the final three matches in the World Cup by one point, you'd have got 19,000 to one, the odds of that ever happening, sure. which is quite which sure. is quite incredible. But we talk about points. You perhaps, no, not perhaps, you, you did score the most important three points, I would say, in South Africa's history. Not only that, you scored all the points in the final, but that dropped goal. I want to go, I, I just want to go to the psychology of the game, Joel, because I've just been watching this World Cup and I've just been amazed at the kickers. Kick, kicking wins games of rugby, there's no doubt about it. It's like they say in cricket, catches win matches. What, what goes through the head of someone like Andre Pollard when he steps up to kick that goal? You, you, obviously, your winning uh, uh, goal was a drop goal, which, I, which is an amazing skill. It's spontaneous. But you had the nerve to kick match-winning points in that final. Now, my wife is uh, b- the biggest Andre Pollard fan. I actually love him more than her at the moment. I've got a crush on the guy. <laughs> we, all, we all do. Yeah. There's, there's, there's a reason why he's one of the richest-played rugby players in the world at the moment. What makes kickers so special? And just tell me about your, your, your mindset when it comes to that, because it, it must get to you the nerves. You're not superhuman. No, no, so it doesn't. So, so I think that is the skill. And I'm, I'm really, I am really chatted to him about this, but I would think most kickers, either we're too too dwarf to understand the pressures or we have a, a way of blocking them out. I think that's the only way to describe it because it, it's if you feel those pressures, if you're aware of those pressures, you are going to tense, tense up, you are going to tighten, and you're going to make mistakes, you're going to miss kicks. That's the reality. And we see it with some of the kickers. I'm loath to say it, but... Sometimes Monty Libok tenses up. Andre Pollard doesn't. You know, that's that's the absolute reality, and we've all seen that. It's a great skill set. It's a great ability, a mental strength to have to be able to perform under pressure like that and not tense up. You see it with anyone who kicks a, 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 sta- a standing ball or hits a standing ball. Tiger Woods, you know, Scotty Scheffler, the, the top golfers in the world. Um, David Beckham, um, you know, the great penalty takers, free kick takers. Every time there's 
the time to stand and wait and think about the consequences, those are the guys, that's where you judge someone on whether they tense up or they don't. And the great goal kickers don't. They have this ability to either block out the pressure or to maybe not understand it, you know, to not, to not, and I don't mean that as saying they are dwarf, I say a tongue in cheek, but it is an ability to, to not even consider it. It doesn't even come into your thought process. When, when I was kicking it, was, whether I was kicking the first kick of the game or a kick to win the World Cup, it never, never, ever entered my mind the importance of the kick. It was only one thing. It was about the process of kicking the ball and doing it the same every time. Everything else is gone. And I think that's where... You've got, you've got to tell me the truth. Surely when that ball was passed to you and you know this was extra time, you had the one chance, did, did the significance of that moment go through you when the, I think it was Mertens who was charging no. it down, wasn't it? No, no there's, no, there's no significance. All you do is you, you're so focused, particularly on a drop ball, you're so focused on catching the ball, body position, dropping it right, kicking through the ball, making sure it's a good strike. There's, there's no time to think about anything else. Maybe I'm the Dorf guy who doesn't have time to think about all those other things. But uh, the drop ball, as you said, I mean, it is spontaneous. It's, 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 there's, there's definitely, when it comes to drop kicking, there's no time for pressure. It's when you're standing and you look up at the posts from a place kick and you think, okay, where's this going to go? Oh my. And to your point, if you are thinking, oh, my goodness, if I kick this, I'm, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna lose, that's, that's when you're definitely going to miss it's when you're standing there and you think, right, I'm going to kick this over now. That's the point I'm aiming at. That's where the ball's going to go because I'm going to step off right. I'm going to step there. I'm going to kick there. Then I'm going to plant my left foot. Then I'm going to follow through perfectly. And, and, and because the process is right, the end result will be good. Well, that's exactly the difference why you've got springbok caps and I haven't because I overthink things and I think, what would I do if I missed and that? And that's the vast majority, of course, of the armchair players who sit at home and they start watching and they think they could do better. But I just want to make that comparison between the, the era you played in because the mental side of the game is certainly recognised that we have sports psychologists. Did you have any of that kind of support back then or was it left for you to actually get through your own challenges as a, as a sportsman, albeit an individual sportsman, playing within a team? So for the Springboks in that era, I, I don't think we had any. Oh, we, I, I think, uh, no, we didn't have anyone on, on the psychology side. We did. We did already in 1990 with, uh, with the Sharks, with, with Mattel, when we won the Curry Cup at Loftus first. What we beat, uh, I hope Nars is watching when we beat Nars and the, and the, and the Blue Bulls. <laughs> we is it. We'll share it um, We'll share it with any team. But we actually did have a sports, yeah, Macintosh brought in a sports psychologist then already and who worked with us a little bit. Um, and and really it was about instilling or, or, or ingraining deeper the self-belief because everything that Chuck did was, was about making us believe we could beat we could beat the Bulls at Loftus on that day in the this great ball side. And and which we did. You know? So so back then already there was a little Entry into it, but certainly nothing as as as, as uh, intense as we see now amongst the the, the teams, and more importantly, the individuals. Because you to, to, to going back to the golf, because I think every single golfer in the world works with a sports psychologist. Huh? Do you, do you have any regrets that you didn't play uh, rugby in a different era? Uh, a lot of a lot of sportsmen I talk, perhaps a little bit older than you, missed out on international competition because of the politics of the country. But I'm particularly thinking about the professional side. Do you look at the likes of, of Pollard now and what they're earning at Leicester and for the box and whatever and think, that could have been me in a different era? Or, or are you glad that you played when you did? And what are the main differences with the modern game? I know the refereeing is probably different. You might want to touch on that. 
Um, so I, I'm not someone who, who looks back really, you know, so I'm a, I'm, I look forward, my eyes are facing forward. So I don't ever really look back thinking, geez, I'd love to have played in a different era. Obviously, I would, you know, it would be, it would, it would be inhuman to look at it and say, well, I wouldn't, I would love to have earned the money the guys are earning. It would have changed, you know, maybe life in some ways. Um, but, but I'm very happy where I am. I, I think um, if I played in a different era, maybe I wouldn't have kicked the drop goal. Maybe we wouldn't have won the World Cup. Maybe, you know, there'd be parts of my life that are very different. Um, so so I, I don't look back with any, harboring any regrets around the time I played, you know. And in some ways, I think we were quite blessed. We played at the end of the amateurs, uh, amateur era where there was you know, maybe a little bit more fun, maybe a little touring was maybe a little bit more, Robust. There was no social media in those days. You know, the guys you could go out and let your hair down a little bit, um, and then we crossed over into into the modern era for a while. So I think we were fortunate. Maybe we were a little more fortunate to have some time in the modern era, the professional era, as opposed to the likes of Johnny Haber or Nas, for that matter, who who, who missed it completely. Maybe we were blessed. No, I think it was a very interesting period uh, in rugby history, but certainly in South African history. And I think you've you've etched your your names into social histories of this country, regardless of sport. And as I said, uh, you know, when Hollywood comes knocking and Mr. Clint Eastwood, there's an amazing story there. And it's something that I've often talked about publicly um, that I want the rest of the world to, to know about. Um, but I, I just want to end up now and just take us back to to the, the, the future of the box. Um, we're. We, of course, we're very well known of playing playing year by year. I think that's our success. We don't necessarily look to the next World Cup. But if you're going to look at the next four years now, Joel, uh, some of our players are ageing. Um, perhaps they, they reach their peak now, which was rightly so. This was expected to be one of their um, strongest years in 23. Have you, got, have you got hope for the future? Can we do it for a fifth time? So I think, firstly, I, I, I think, to, you know, you said it earlier, the government's probably not good at marketing or... or, or you know, telling us what they're doing or, 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 you know, projecting the good news. And maybe SA Rugby don't talk about it enough as well. They have a program um, that that is aimed for the future. You know, Rossi and Jacques have a, have a whole system that they've had for, you know, the seven years that they've, they've been there, since six years that they've been there. When, when they took over in early 2018, their goal was to win the World Cup in 2023, not 2019. They, they had a long-term plan, and their, their, their plan is still one that evolves year to year to include, you know, continuity into the future. It's not just about now. Um, I think every team, having said that, I think every team does go through a period of evolution, and I think we are going to be in one of those periods now. As good as that plan may have been, been as, as, as much as there may have been youngsters that have you know, been brought in to be mentored, to learn, to, you know, get a taste of the squad that will maybe come in, on a more regular basis now in the next year, the next 18 months, I think there's there's no doubt that some of the stalwarts of the side are going to evolve out of the squad in, in the next little while. And you, you can't help but look at some of the, the players that, have, that, are, that are maybe getting towards the end of their international career or who have already declared the end of their national, international career. Um, and, and so you will find that, God, I don't know, just looking from the front backwards, you know, Stephen Kitsoff's, you know, Franz Malherbe, Bongi won't get around for the next World Cup, you would think, you know, touch and go. Even it's a bit, I doubt very much will be there the next World Cup. You know, you can go through the whole squad. Um, there, there are names that won't, that won't be there, you know. So 
we are going to go through a period of evolution, but there's two things that will, will keep us in good stead. One is we in this country produce a plethora of talent year in, year out. We just turn up big, strong rugby players with great skills. We, there's, there's, there's just no other way of looking at it. We have a plethora of talent coming through the school system that have, that have been coming, that are still coming, that will continue to come forever and ever. It's just the nature of, of, of who we are. So the talent is there. That's the first thing. The talent is there. In the last few years, we've seen this, this um, our style of rugby develop a little bit from you know, very much a box kit on nine and a big washing game to a little bit more sophisticated to um, you know, the, 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 the wingers and the outside backs counterattacking, getting the ball, playing, playing the game a little bit more. So I think that the thought process is there as well. The thought process in terms of developing our players, the thought process in terms of developing our game, and Rusty has still got a two-year contract left. You know, he's there for another two years. So I've absolutely no doubt that uh, in the next years, we the, the period, this evolution might see a little bit of inconsistency, but the talent will ensure that in time to come, we'll, we'll always be a great rugby player nation. Oh, without a doubt. Let's hope people have got the patience for that. I just want to. I just want to end up because I I'll, I'll kick myself out if, if I don't ask you. I remember during our previous interviews. You let me know a few stories that are happening in the background in '95. Um, <laughs> we uh, we we talked we talked about team spirit, and uh, you can just see that there's a lot of fun in the current box squad. They got a really good uh, they got a really good uh, um, togetherness, and uh, whether it's Faf or whoever is the joker, who was the team joker back in '95? I remember I remember you um, you mentioning somebody put a, a snook in somebody's bed. Do you remember that story? What was going on in the oh, background yeah. just to keep you together? <laughs> Well, well, I think um, I think probably in 1995, in that squad of 28 or whatever, there were probably 28 jokers because everyone, you know, was uh, was quite mischievous in their own way. And Rudolph Strali was the one who put the snook in Mark Andrews' bed. Just one of the best days, and it was always a nightmare. You know, he, there was always things happening. Um, it, it was it was it was a team, I guess. So I guess when you bring together players from different, you know, unions who've been used to bashing each other up for for many years. Firstly, it, there's really strong leadership in, in those. All those players are top leaders. Everyone's a captain of their position and, and a lot of guys are captain of their teams at some point. Um, but everyone had also had a lot of fun. Everyone knew all the all the gags and all the tricks. And uh, of all the guys I played with, though, probably the most mischievous and the naughtiest. Didn't play in that 95 squad, would have, could, but, but it would undoubtedly have to be Dick Muir. He, there was wherever Dick Muir was. There was just chaos reigning. I've heard about him. I've heard about him. He's got that yeah. that look about him. He's uh, that that you know. But you need that in a team, isn't it? There's something special about being in a team. And I know when we brought you together a few years ago, I could just see the camaraderie between you. It was almost like you slipped back into your roles again. And uh, that's that's something special about certainly rugby. It's one of those sports, isn't it? And uh, yeah. no, long may you can long may you continue in the '95 boys for being ambassadors not only for for rugby, Joel, but for, for the country. And uh, it's been a, it's been a pri- privilege today speaking to you, and I hope we can have a chat again. And uh, have you got a final message for everybody listening out in uh, the Eastern Cape? Yeah, so, so, so firstly, Dean, I could just say, you know, rugby is this incredible sport. We, we, we keep referring to it as, 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 you know, our South African culture and South African rugby has its own unbelievable culture. You know, you, you run onto the field, you smash each other for 80 minutes, and after the game, you're best of mates. I mean, we all have mates from the All Blacks, the Australians, the English, 
We socialize, we chat to you from time to time, we check in with you, make sure everyone's okay. It's much broader than just, you know, the little team you play in. So so rugby is uh, has this very, very special culture. And, and, and the Eastern Cape in particular has a special rugby culture. You've mentioned some of the history there. Um, some of the great schools that are churning out, you know, players from all different cultures. Long may rugby in the Eastern Cape continue because I think that the future, the future Springbok teams will always will always have a backbone of players from the Eastern Cape. So support the game down there. Um, continue to fight, you know, to get test matches, to get you know, first class rugby, and uh, and we all look forward to coming down to watch the game there, to support the game, and to spend time with, in the friendly city. Thanks so much. Don't leave it too long. You're always welcome here. You know that. Thanks again, Joel. Cheers. That was Frontierland with Dr. Dean Allen. For more podcasts, visit algoafm.co.za.